Okay, um, before you uh, grab your Bible and turn to Isaiah, I'm going to cut you off at the pass and ask you to turn all the way back to the book of Genesis. We'll get a little bit of a running start here. I guess that's a big running start when you go all the way back to Genesis, right? So uh, so we'll do that, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, speaking of uh, creating the heavens and the earth, as we uh, were reminded of in our psalm, that's where uh, the Bible starts. That's where Genesis begins. And uh, why is that important? Because what we're going to look at today is not the first time that we see the hope of the coming Messiah. We've seen in Isaiah a couple of things, haven't we? We've seen that um, time and time and time and time again, people that are called by God, that have been blessed by God, that have been given his word, that have been entrusted with a mission to be an influence for him, for the world, that those people continue to utterly fail in the mission. And not only do they fail in the mission, uh, they have rejected their commander-in-chief. Uh, they've said, we don't want to be a part of your family. We don't want to be a part of your situation. Uh, they are eclectics. Uh, they are um, pragmatists, right? What have they done? They said, well, yeah, yeah, we want to worship the Lord, but we want to go worship the Assyrian gods just in case. It's like a little insurance policy that, uh, you know, that, that Assyrian king is pretty bad. Remember, he's taken over the whole world. There's this tiny little spot on the map called Judah, and that's where Isaiah and his people live, and they are under the threat of that invasion. And uh, so as just a little bit of uh, extra help, they think, well, maybe we'll just go do a little bit of idolatry, and we'll set up some false gods. And uh, so that's the situation. So time and time again, God's people have rejected him, and yet we see God in his faithfulness and kindness and care continuing to show patience, continuing to give grace, and continuing to remind them that if they will repent, uh, there is still hope in the Lord, but only if they repent. And that's something of uh, what we've seen. And even you know, after a series of wicked kings governing the nation of Judah, we've had a couple of good ones like Hezekiah. And yet as the, the close of the first half of Isaiah uh, comes uh, the end of chapter 39, we realize that uh, Hezekiah crashes and burns. He, he stumbles two yards before the finish line. And we say, you know what, that can't be the hope. It can't be a human king that is the hope for the world. So God says, good news, I've got a plan. And as we've seen in chapter 40, uh, all the way into where we find ourselves today in chapter 53, that God's God's plan is to bring a servant, to bring a Messiah, an anointed one, as we heard him, uh, David Gibson, talking about his usual Old Testament title, uh, Meshiach, right? The, the Messiah, the anointed one who would come and save his people from their sins. But I want you to see that that, that didn't start in Isaiah. And uh, so look, as, as we go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, God has created the heavens and the earth. He's called people to image him and to worship him and love him, and yet sin has come into the world in chapter 3, and uh, God pronounces judgment on people and on creation. And yet in the middle of all that, as paradise is lost, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God tells the woman this really odd fact. Verse 15, Genesis 3:15. God says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, 
and the woman, that's Eve, between your seed, the offspring of the servant, uh, excuse me, of the serpent, right, the snake, and her seed, the offspring of the woman. So God is saying as a consequence of what the serpent has done as he pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve, the world and the serpent, he says um, there will be fighting and enmity and strife between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And then we get this odd little passage. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What does that mean? Well, I guarantee you that confused the Israelites because they, what, what does that even mean? That the, the seed of the woman one day will come and crush the head of the serpent. And uh, of course, the rest of the Bible unpacks the mystery of that verse. And, and we know that because down in verse, uh, where is it here? Uh, we look down and we see in chapter 3, verse 21, God does something that had never happened in creation. He kills one of his creatures, shedding its blood, taking its coat, and using it to cover the shame and guilt and sin of Adam and Eve. And that's the first hint about how this is going to happen. And uh, those of you in our home group, uh, in our Genesis study, we've just talked about this. And uh, this is what's called the protangelium, right? That's your, your Latin term for the day, right? It's, it's the first instance of the gospel. Uh, turn the page, a couple pages to the right, to Genesis chapter 12, where God, this is hundreds of years later, where God calls a man named Abram to go from his land and uh, to leave his country to a new land that God's going to give him. This is Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And and here's the, the red letter verse here. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We say, well, how's that going to happen? Well, we have to keep reading. The Bible's like a mystery novel. You know, there's like all these clues so that you don't tune out and close it and go, okay, that was nice, but you want to keep reading. What does that mean? How is this, this unknown man who's leaving his country, how is he and the family and the nation that comes from him literally going to bless the world? I know, I know. He's going to write a blog and everybody's going to read it. He's going to have a YouTube channel and everybody's going to, no, no. Even the technological advances that we might think if he lived in today, that might be the fulfillment. No, no, no. That's not it at all. It's going to be someone who comes from his family that blesses the families of the earth. Flip the page all the way to the end of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 49, uh, as one of, uh, remember, uh, Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 boys who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, Jacob's getting ready to die, and so he's blessing his boys in chapter 49. And uh, he turns, David Gibson talked about this last Sunday, 
to one of his boys, Judah, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. And he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Wow, that's kind of weird. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. Verse 10, the scepter. The scepter. What's a scepter? A scepter is that thing that kings hang on to. It's a king instrument, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Well, who's Judah? He's an unknown guy living in the famine in Egypt. What's he doing with a king's scepter? What is this even about? That there is some scepter, some some king instrument that comes from the family of Judah, the, and it shall it, it won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until my Bible says Shiloh comes. What does your Bible say? Is it something like that? Shiloh is a guess at the translation. If you translate it literally, it means until the one comes to whom it belongs. The king's instrument will not depart from the family of Judah until the guy who owns the scepter shows up. And it's not surprising when we open the New Testament that the New Testament starts with a genealogy that says the Messiah goes back to which family? The lion of the tribe of Judah. It's right here. That's where we get that. Okay, so you see the idea that what we're about to read, you can turn to Isaiah 53 now. We keep going all the way up to Isaiah 53, but we don't have time to do that. But you understand that the Bible is building momentum, literally from the very first chapters, that this person, this Messiah, this seed of the woman, this lion from the tribe of Judah, the, the one to whom the scepter belongs, is coming. And what will he do? He will somehow undo the universal problem of humanity. He will bless the families of the earth. He will crush the head of Satan. And in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, and we don't have to wait to the New Testament. What we're going to see today is that the Bible gives us specific, clear evidence of what we're supposed to recognize when the servant comes. And in fact, uh, if, if you're a Bible skeptic, and, and you may be a Bible skeptic, or maybe you know a Bible skeptic, and you think this book is really, really old, it's been translated a whole lot of times, how do we know it's true? Good question. We know it's true because what we're going to see today is an incredible, detailed, objective, specific description of the servant. Written generations, hundreds of years before Jesus is even born in Bethlehem. And it gives clear testimony that God is real and the Bible is true because he tells us things before they happen. And, and, and not like when you're sitting waiting for the checker at HEB and you kind of look over at the magazine rack and they've got the horoscope there and you look at that and, and it, or, or you get the fortune cookie at the Chinese place and it says something. You go, well, this, this seems to be true of me. Well, well, that's smoke and mirrors, right? That, that's giving you generic information about generic hope that can apply to anything because it's highly subject to interpretation. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is clear, specific, objective, detailed information about the servant that makes it unquestionable that it's the Messiah who doesn't show up till the first century. Okay, we're back in the seventh century, right? That's what we're looking at here. 
So, okay, let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. Let me start the PowerPoint for you here. And so, as promised, we're going to do a second pass through the same, uh, really the same outline and, and the same uh, principles that we saw last time. But this time, the, the goal of our study is going to be specifically to see how the New Testament fulfills or demonstrates the fulfillment. We a better way to say it. The New Testament demonstrates how Jesus the Messiah fulfills the description of Isaiah 53 that we see. Okay, so let's let's jump right here. And uh, that's not what I want. Where is it? There we go. Oh, and it's doing it again. Hang on, stand by. And there we go. There we go. Okay, you can see it. I can see it. Okay, there we go. Okay, God delivers part three. You're gonna one more pass through this. Okay, so looking at Isaiah 53 uh, and the description there. Remember what we saw last time in the first few verses, right? Chapter 52, verses 14 and 15. People are astonished, right? They they stand utterly shocked at the marred appearance. Chapter 52, verse 14. His form was marred more than any man, more than the sons of man. Verse 15. Nations will be startled. Remember, there's a translation issue there. It's not sprinkle. It's startled, right? Kings will shut their mouths on account of him because what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. So they're, they're shocked by his appearance but they're shocked as well because they finally realize what has been told them, but they were not able to understand, right? And, and what is that? What is that? It's that the Messiah, the promised servant of the Old Testament, is none other than the Lord Jesus. Now, now notice we have lots of descriptions of him. We, we see him, first of all, in the Messianic Psalms. And we didn't look at this last time, and you don't need to turn there just now. But listen to Psalm 22, which is a, a very detailed description of this coming servant. It starts off like this. You, you know this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We say, didn't Jesus say that on the cross? Yeah, he did. But that's not where it comes from. It comes from Psalm 22, written over a thousand years before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem, before Jesus walked the planet as the God-man, right? It comes from this psalm, and we get this description in Psalm 22. Listen, listen to what the Messiah says about himself as he is prophesied in Psalm 22. I am a worm... And not a man. What an odd thing to say. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate their lips. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And that should sound familiar as we'll see in a minute. Verse 14 of Psalm 22, I've poured out like wax. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. And, and we read this and we go, what happened to this man? Well, the answer is they crucified him is what the answer is. And let me show you this. Just hold your place in Isaiah. Flip over to, Isaiah, or to Matthew chapter 26. And we don't have a chance to go through all of these. I've listed several verses in your notes just for your reference. But what I want you to see 
is how the Messiah fulfills in specific, detailed, precise uh, uh, descriptions exactly what we read in Isaiah 53. So Matthew chapter 26, this is uh, uh, the day before the crucifixion, right, where Jesus is uh, betrayed and then he is uh, arrested and he is beaten. And in chapter Matthew 26, verse 67, we read these words. After they had um, uh, tried him, uh, the, the, this is before Caiaphas, the high priest, which starts in verse 57. Uh, you know, they, they ask him, right, are, are you are the son of God? And Jesus said, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest gets up, tears his robe, and says he has blasphemed. Remember, that means he claims to be God, right? What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you now heard blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. They're a little mock courtroom there. So what did they do? Verse 67. They spat in his face. They beat him with their fists. And others slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, meaning you anointed one, you Messiah. Who is the one who hits you? Mocking him, beating him. Exactly what Isaiah said would happen. And that's why he ends up with the description. Look at down at chapter 27. Uh, again, this is now under the authority of Pilate and the Roman cohort. Matthew 27. Verse 29, after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took a reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments on back and led him away to crucify him. And if you know anything, you've, all of you have heard sermons on crucifixion before, that it was quite common that the person being taken to crucifixion was hardly recognizable because of the beating and scourging and torture that happened leading up to that event. So why is God's servant, God's man, God's plan for deliverance, why is he unattractive? Why is he marred? Why is he unidentifiable? Because of the torture that he endured leading up to the crucifixion. That's why. Number two, we read in chapter 53, back to Isaiah, that he will be utterly rejected. Now this is this is, again, quite shocking as well, because from the beginning of the Bible, God has told us this servant is going to come. This is what the Israelites sing about in their songs. This is what they, they uh, recite in their uh, synagogue worship services. It's what they tell their children. It's what the law is all based on, the, the sacrificial system, that, that a Messiah will come. And yet what happens? Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? Isaiah says, after decades and, and hundreds of years, centuries of, of hearing these descriptions and the hope of the Messiah, he comes and no one listens, right? To whom has the harm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot a root like out of, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should 
um, look upon him nor uh, appearance that we should be attracted to him. Instead, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. If we hold our place there and let's turn over to a second uh, to Dr. Luke's account of the events surrounding the crucifixion. Let's turn over there to Luke chapter 23 and notice what happens as we look over at this account of the events and how they are fulfilled. Luke chapter 23 and verse 8. Uh, again, this is uh, Jesus. You remember uh, Jesus stood before the, the Jewish authorities. Then he was sent uh, to, he had a number of different trials that all happened really overnight, the night before the crucifixion, right? He stood before Caiaphas, the high priest. He stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He stood before Pilate. He stood before Herod. And so this is the instance where uh, Pilate sends him off to King Herod, believing that he was under, Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction. You wonder, is that was that true or was he, Pilate just didn't want to deal with him, right? So chapter 23 of Luke, verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some signs, right? And he questioned him at some length, but he answered. He, he answered nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a, a gorgeous robe, Luke tells us, a, a robe fitting for a king, and sent him back to Pilate, one more way of mocking him. So as he's passed from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, to ruler to ruler, to council to council, what do we see? None of them say, this must stop. You got the wrong man. There's no basis for a trial. So, actually, Pilate says that, but then what does he do? He hands him over to the Jews anyway. So we see the rejection of the Messiah from trial to trial, from courtroom to courtroom. In fact, John 1.11 tells us that that's exactly what will happen. Remember the word, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But chapter 1, verse 11, John says this. Before any of it happens, John tells us this. He, Jesus, came to his own... And yet those who were his own did what? They did not receive him. They utterly rejected him. And so this deliverer, this promised Messiah, the, the hope of Israel, the, the one in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed when he comes, he's rejected by the religious establishment. He's rejected by the Roman government. He's rejected largely by his own people, just as Isaiah prophesied. Notice this, thirdly, he will bear the sins of people. We saw that back in chapter 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him uh, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That, that means to be beaten. That means to be tortured. That means to be mistreated. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Notice the description here of being pierced. You'll, you'll see this uh, multiple times in the Old Testament. 
And, and we, we ask the question, why is Isaiah used that language? What's the significance of that? Well, again, if we go to the New Testament, we have a commentary on this. We have an explanation of it. Uh, look with me. Again, hold your place in Isaiah. Go all the way to the end of your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter, yeah, I'm going to take you all over your Bible, so just get used to it. I'm going to go all over the place. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 24. Uh, Peter has introduced himself to his readers. Remember, these are largely um, believers that are scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey today. They've been scattered due to persecution. He's writing to them to encourage them to stay the course, to not give up their faith, that God is working. And, And as he narrows the focus... Where does our hope lie even when hard times come? He reminds them of the person and work of the Lord Jesus and, and particularly how he endured suffering. We read that in First Peter chapter 2 on into chapter 3. But listen to the, as, as he's encouraging us to follow Christ and to look to Christ as an example of one who went ahead of us and suffered Uh, Verse 21 says, leaving you an example for you to follow. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, here's our verse. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for, you're going to recognize this, by his wounds you were healed. Okay, so we get, Peter is saying, looking backward to the crucifixion, this is exactly what Isaiah said. This is the same language as Isaiah and the other prophets that it's by his wounds and scourging and afflictions and ultimately his crucifixion that he would be our substitute, bearing our sins so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. And, of course, you, we all know 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, another thing that Isaiah points out in Isaiah 53 is that Jesus was completely innocent, and yet he's punished anyway. Just listen. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But as for his generation, who had considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. What's Isaiah saying? He's saying that this servant is punished not for his own sin, but for the sins of the people. He's innocent, but he's punished in their place. And he goes on to say in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, yet he was with a rich man in his death, even though he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Well, again, back to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27, we, we, we parachute back into this section where um, uh, the trial is going on. Jesus is standing in this context before Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus in chapter 12, 27, verse 13, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And Jesus did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. 
And the governor Pilate was quite, quite amazed. And um, he comes down in verse 19, Pilate sitting in the judgment seat. His wife says to him through a message, have nothing to do with this man. I suffered greatly in a dream. But what happens? The chief priest, verse 20, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. The governor said to him, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or this man? The one who is called the Christ. And they all said, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But he kept shouting all the more saying, crucify him. And verse 24, when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the people saying what? I'm innocent of this man's blood. See, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but he gave in to the mob. And and, uh, one of the other gospel writers, of course, tells us, he looks at Jesus and says, do you not understand that I have authority to release you or give you up to be crucified? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have a lick of power if it was not given to you by my father. So we see again, he's punished though he's innocent. Even a pagan Roman governor asserts that and comes to that conclusion. You don't need to turn there, but John in his letter, his first letter at the end of our Bible, the letter we call 1 John, he writes this, to God's people, reminding them of the work of Jesus. 1 John 3, 5 says this, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and yet in him there is no sin. So Jesus, or John asserts again that Jesus was completely innocent, and yet he is punished in the place of sinners. We also know, uh, uh, fifthly, that he will save his people. Isaiah 53 goes on to describe the fact that he will be our substitution, that God is pleased to crush the servant if he will be a guilt offering, if he will render himself that sacrifice that would bring sinners back into relationship to God. The writer of Hebrews, uh, it's incredible. The writer of Hebrews quotes Isaiah extensively, just like we've seen in Pastor Terry's section of Romans, chapter 9, 10, and 11, where Paul quotes extensively from the, the book of Isaiah. Listen to the writer as he describes how and why Jesus endures the cross. L- listen to this, okay? If you if you want to look there at Hebrews chapter 12, you can do that. Uh, Isaiah says that God will crush the servant if he will render himself a guilt offering, if he will stand in the place of sinners, and if he will do that, Isaiah says, what? He will be satisfied. He will see the outcome of his work. The Messiah will say, I see what my death will accomplish. And that motivates him. That that encourages him to be satisfied, even to find joy in the work of redemption that he's about to accomplish that will bring his physical life to an end. Listen to how the writer to Hebrews describes this in chapter 12, uh, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and and lose heart. What's the writer to Hebrews saying? It's a little bit confusing. Isaiah says what? The Messiah will be the Messiah will go through with this. He will even be satisfied with what he's about to do. Why? Because he looks ahead in the future and says, I know what my death is going to accomplish, and that gives me confidence and even even a delight to do what I'm about to do. Think about that. Jesus looked at his accusers, looked at the Romans, looked at the Sanhedrin, looked at Caiaphas, looked at Herod, looked at the Roman executioners, knowing exactly what would come, in terms of the physical torture and eventual death. And at the same time, as we saw in the garden the night before, it was not the physical torture that was weighing him down. It was the spiritual reality of what he would about to do, what what he's going to do, that he would bear the sins of people, that he would be afflicted by his own father, that the wrath of God for you and me and our sins that that is poured out eternally would be poured out on him. Uh, you remember that in the Bible, the wrath of God is often pictured as a cup. We see that in the book of Revelation. We see it in Romans chapter 2, that there's a cup of wrath that is being stored up for all of us who rebel and disobey and reject God. And as Jesus comes to the cross, God, as it were, hands him the cup of God's own righteous judgment and wrath that all of us deserved. And Jesus pictures that cup and the spiritual torture that's about to happen as he drinks it. And Hebrews says, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would the Father consent with the Son to crush His one and only Son? And the answer is joy. The answer is it brought delight to the Father and it brought delight to the Son, not in going through the the mechanics of the crucifixion itself, but in what? The joy set before him, right? What's that? That's the work of redemption accomplished. It's people like you and people like me and people from every tribe and tongue and nation redeemed, forgiven, restored, adopted into the family and brought into eternity with the Lord Jesus himself. And Isaiah says that's why the Messiah the, the servant agrees to do this. He will see his, pro, his posterity. He will see the future, his own offspring, what his own death will accomplish. And he says, I'm ready for the mission. And Hebrew says it was the joy set before him that allowed him to endure, endure the cross. And finally, um, Isaiah 53 verse 12 Ends on this note. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the spoil with, with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. And if we go back up 
to chapter 52, verse 13, we read these words. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. What does that tell us? That the servant is not a kamikaze savior. He's a resurrected savior. He's an exalted savior. He is a coming back to life and ruling and reigning at God's right hand savior. Watch this as we look at one more text in Philippians chapter 2, the the commentary on the incarnation, right? The explanation of how God, the Son of God, can take on a human nature so that he is God and man at the same time and the same person. And Paul explains that as he pulls back the theological curtain, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, or verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Remember that doesn't mean he ceased to be God. It doesn't mean he lost attributes. What it means is he left the position at the right hand of his father in all his glory. He came to the earth. He took on a human nature. And it says here, he took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. You remember in that, that uh, the allegory that many of us have appreciated by C.S. Lewis, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and Aslan, the Christ figure, has been sacrificed after being uh, uh, killed on the stone table by the white witch who represents Satan. And uh, the girls early in the morning go to see the broken stone table. Why is it broken in two? Uh, and they wonder, and they're crying, wonder, where is Aslan gone? And they look, shining in the sun, uh, and they say it appears that he was even larger. His mane has regrown. They see the lion. And they say to him, aren't you dead, Aslan? We thought you were dead. And he says, not now. He's not a dead savior. He's a risen savior. And Paul says, for this reason, verse 9, God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name which is above every name. The, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just like Isaiah said, this servant who you think would be despised and rejected and dead and gone, somehow is exalted. And we know that as the New Testament unfolds because God raises, his from, raises him from the dead, ascends him to heaven, gives him back, restores his position at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns and calls all people to trust him and to humble themselves and to know him because Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is not dead now. He's a resurrected Savior. He's an exalted Savior. Okay? Well, we're out of time, so let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Um, thank you so much for this time in your word. We, we are grateful uh, that you love us. We are grateful that you have made it clear in this text exactly who the Messiah, the servant is. Uh, his name is King Jesus, 
and we see in unquestionable, undeniable detail as the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus is the promised servant. And we are grateful not just to see that connection, but we are thankful for who he is and his work that has brought us back into relationship with you. Lord, encourage us in these things. Help us to use what we've learned today to help our skeptic friends to see the precision and detail with which God gives prophecy. And we pray, Father, that every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess, not one day, uh, but now, as men and women would repent and trust Jesus now. We're grateful for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.